Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. Last week on the show, I talked with comics writer Kevin Church about the Enterprise incident, an episode of the original series that sees Captain Kirk go undercover as a Romulan and Mr. Spock in the role of honey trap for the Romulan commander, all in the service of getting the Federation's hands on the Romulan's cloaking device. Which, really, they could have saved themselves some time. It's just Nomad's head glued to Sargon's globe. Uh, Yeah, the prop budget on season three was a bit limited, although... Nomad and Sargon teaming up would be a pretty good plot for a tie-in novel, if anybody wants to take a shot at that. The episode depicts our heroes acting in some decidedly dishonest ways. Sure, it's for the good of the Federation, and even Vulcans can lie if they're ordered to. But we're Starfleet, right, Wes? We don't lie. Our heroes are supposed to be the best of the best, the vanguard of a civilization built on integrity and probity. So where does that leave entities like Starfleet Intelligence and Section 31, who do the dirty deeds that keep the lights on in the city on the hill? I don't know. It's a tough question, one that's been debated recently in Star Trek Discovery and will certainly continue to be explored in the upcoming Section 31 series on CBS All Access. And it's one that we've asked more than once on this show. The morality of espionage, good people doing bad things, and whether they can live with it. I knew I'd need somebody well-versed in these topics to get some answers, and for that reason, I'm extremely privileged to have James Swallow as a guest on the show today. James is the author of novels and audio dramas and video games set in the world of Trek, as well as other fictional universes like Warhammer 40K, Stargate, and Blake 7, amongst many more. He's the author of the latest Star Trek Discovery tie-in novel, Fear Itself, and he provided the stories for two Kraken episodes of Star Trek Voyager. His new series of espionage thrillers, the Mark Dane series follows an MI6 analyst as he is thrust into the gritty life-and-death world of international espionage and anti-terrorism in a post-9-11 world. The fourth book in the Mark Dane series, Shadow, comes out on May 30th. I talked with James about his work on Star Trek, on helping to shape the character of Saru and other elements of Discovery, writing spy novels in a post-Cold War world, and reinventing himself as a spy thriller novelist. He also shared some stories with me about his time working on Star Trek Voyager, from having Brian Fuller buy his pitch to taking a call from Brandon Braga in the middle of a piss-up, which is like a party in England, a rager. He wasn't like in the executive bathroom scene in RoboCop. Anyway, it was a great talk, and it's coming right up. Stay tuned after the interview to hear what's coming up on next week's show and where you can find James' books and a few other cloak-and-dagger novels from the Star Trek universe. The kumquat is in the pickle barrel. Repeat, the kumquat is in the pickle barrel. And while we're waiting for the transmission of the correct countersign, let's get underway. My guest on the show today is James Swallow. James is the New York Times and Sunday Times best-selling author of numerous novels, short stories, audio dramas, and video games set in a variety of fictional universes, from Star Trek to Warhammer 40K to Deus Ex, Doctor Who, Stargate, and Blake 7. His latest series of Mark Dane thrillers explores the modern world of international espionage and terrorism, and the fourth Mark Dane book, Shadow, is set for release in May of this year. James, welcome to the show. 
Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on board. And I always ask new guests to the show how they first discovered Star Trek. When did you become a Star Trek fan? Oh, therein lies a tale. Oh, um, I, I would say, I would say probably it, it would be the late seventies, early eighties, when um, BBC Two over here were rerunning the original classic Star Trek show, and that was that was how I discovered. It. So I would come home from school, and Star Trek would be on just before dinner time. So in that kind of period where, you know, mum would call me down for dinner, well, dinner's going to be ready in about an hour. And I'll be like, oh, okay, I'll sit on TV, turn on BBC Two, and I'll watch Star Trek. And and that was about the the time that, um, I think it's in, in the years just before Ratha Khan came out. So they kind of, that was the, the point when, when I really sort of like became steeped in Star Trek. And I went out and bought all the books, and I became a, a, a really a serious fan of it. Uh, you know, I, I went to conventions. I, I helped run a Star Trek fan club and, and that kind of thing. So I was really... A serious sort of like Star Trek fan. Yeah, I think I, I'd describe it as like my first fandom. You know, uh -huh. a lot of people, a lot of people will have the you know the thing that got them into kind of geekery, and I think Star Trek definitely fulfills that role for me. And so uh, for a few years, you know, I, w I was involved in sort of the fan side of it, and then I uh, I started writing magazine articles. And some of the magazines I worked for were like officially licensed Star Trek tie-in publications. Yeah. So I, so I, uh, that was even better, right? Because then I was getting paid for being a nerd, which is <laughs> right. which, which was great. Uh, off the back of that, I got the opportunity, uh, thanks to some people that I'd uh, I'd worked with, to to pitch for Star Trek. I uh, pitched uh, for Star Trek Voyager, and um, my badge of geek pride is that I'm the only British writer ever to have worked on a Star Trek TV show. I sold two episodes. Uh, two story pitches for for Star Trek Voyager, which which were eventually made into episodes. Yeah, and then after that, uh, tried to pitch for Enterprise, but you know, unfortunately, uh, didn't make the grade on that one. But huh. I got the opportunity off the back of that to pitch stories for the Star Trek book series, and that got me into writing uh, novels in the franchise. And I've been doing that ever since. Yeah. Uh, why do you think that it's great that you were the only uh, British writer ever to write for Star Trek? But why do you think that that's true? I mean, were there other British writers out there who were pitching and, and writing things and just not making it in? Or are there less uh, British authors who are trying to make it as a Star Trek screenwriter? I think I, I know for a fact that there were other British writers doing it. I think part of it is, is I was just lucky. Okay. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, good um, ideas. <laughs> you know, uh, well, yeah, I mean, I don't, don't want to brag, right? You know, but it's, it, <laughs> go, it's, go um, it, it's kind of like, you know, any success in any entertainment industry, half of it is persistence. Yeah. Uh, but a big dose of it is, is being in the right place at the right time. Uh, and so, you know, it was one of those things where I said to myself, this is the thing I really want to do. This is a career path I really want to take. So I just dedicated myself to it. So I put a lot of time and energy and effort into doing it. Uh, and that pays off, you know, you know, you make your own luck in these kind of things, I think is, is true, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, but you got to be in the right place to have the right conversations with, with, with the right kind of people. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and I think Star Trek is sometimes just kind of seen as a purely uh, American f phenomenon. I've heard that British Trek fandom is a little, is a little different than American Trek fandom. Yeah. I mean, but there's still a lot of love for it. I mean, I think it is a franchise that speaks to you no matter what nationality you are. You know, I've talked to French and Italian and Russian and Japanese Star Trek fans, you know, the, and everybody gets the whole idea of the, the idea at the core of Star Trek is, which is, you know, if we all work together, we can do amazing things. Yeah. And that doesn't, and that doesn't matter what nationality you're from. And Star Trek's always been a show that's flown the flag for here is a diverse group of people from all over the galaxy, yeah. you know, coming together to, to, to do cool stuff. So I think it's always spoken to, to that sort of sensibility. Yeah, it's true, isn't it, that you had, you'd pitched a Trek before Voyager, but you uh, didn't manage to ever sell anything? I mean, was Voyager just the best fit for your ideas? 
Well, back in the day, uh, there was a, uh, a setup where by you could pitch for Next Generation. Yeah. Uh, and that was in the the late 1980s, and I wrote a couple of terrible, terrible <laughs> CNG scripts right right at the beginning of of, of my writing career, which you know uh, broke all of the rules and regulations that they had. And, <laughs> yeah, sure, and, sure. You know, but looking back at it now, I think you know, I think my God, why did I waste my opportunity writing those terrible stories? And then I realised actually, you know, that I kind of had to learn the hard way. I, ha I had to have that beaten out of me. And yeah. I think, so I think in a way it's a that was a very good learning experience. So yeah, the at the time uh, there were were was the opportunity to pitch for for DS9, but it was a lot harder to get in a DS9 because the show's very heavily serialized at that mm. point. Yeah. Whereas Voyager always played more towards the kind of episodic end of things. Yeah. So so it was a little easier to kind of come in from out of the blue and say here's a completely uh, isolated you know uh, episodic style idea that would be an easier sell to voyager yeah so when so when the chance came um i thought to myself well what is the way to 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 sell a story you know what is the the thing that people always want and of course on a show like star trek which is an expensive television show they're always looking for an episode that can be done cheaply that <laughs> sure. that you know they they want to do an episode where they have a big special effects budget but they'll need like oh at the back end of the season we're going to need a couple of episodes that are only shot on one soundstage yeah you know, where and I thought, oh, if I pitch them a story like that, that'll be the kind of episode that they would be more likely to buy and bank maybe to do later on in the series or in a different season right. because it would be a cheap episode to do. So that was my idea. And we call those bottle shows because yeah, right. it, it all takes place in a bottle. So the first story I pitched was uh, the original title was Perchance to Dream. And it became uh, the episode one, which is basically seven of nine piloting Voyager through a radioactive nebula on her own. Uh, I think, the, and the doctor's in there as well. Uh, and she starts to go slowly crazy. And that's basically the entire episode. Everybody else in the, in on board the ship is in suspended animation. Yeah. Right. Same sets, one guest star, uh, pretty cheap. And, and, uh, and there you go. So, uh, <laughs> and, and, and that was, that was the pitch. And it was, um, um, uh, Brian Fuller, who, uh, you know, is, is one of my writing heroes was the guy who, who bought that pitch of me. And I can remember sitting in his office and he said, oh, we, we do it like The Shining, like the Voy Voyager is the Overlook Hotel in <laughs> yeah, The Shining. And it's sure. like, you know, and I said, that's exactly it. That's exactly the idea <laughs> this, this empty, scary space. And, you know, poor old Seven of Nine there and stuck on the spaceship all on our own. Right. Uh, and and that, was, that was the genesis of the idea. And so that's old. That must have been so exciting uh, and validating to have them buy your ideas as a Star Trek fan. You know, I have a, I have a story about that. I remember the, when that when I got the call, um, the uh, lady by the name of Lita Fajo, who was um, Star Trek script coordinator, and she had become a good friend of mine. She was the person who basically helped me uh, get into this. I always say she kind of opened the back door to Star Trek and looked the other way while I while I snuck in. <laughs> and and um, she called me, and, and it was really great because she said she specifically asked if she could be the one to call me because we were friends. And she told me this story, and I remember being completely numb. Uh -huh. I expected, like, I remember thinking to myself, oh, if I sell an episode, I'm going to, like, dance around the room, dance a jig, you know. And I remember she told me, and I was like, oh, great, yeah, okay. And I was just, <laughs> I remember I had this complete sort of, did that actually just happen? <laughs> and it was only afterwards, like, a couple of hours later, that it kind of sunk in. I was like, oh, my God, I have just done this, done this thing. Uh, you know, I've, I have, like, won the Star Trek lottery. Yeah, right. Um, and, yeah, it was, it was pretty incredible. But it was also... Um, it was humbling in a lot of ways and it was it was challenging to me as well because the first thing i thought of was now i have to do this again yeah because because if i just do it once 
people would say, oh, you know, you're lucky or, you know, you're kind of, you're a one hit wonder, you're a tourist, right? Yeah. You know, and I want to do this professionally. I want to prove to myself that this is something, you know, I could, I could try and make a career of. So if anything, I pushed even harder to try and say, well, I want to sell another story to show that this is a thing that, you know, I'm going to do with my life. Yeah. Uh, and that was, uh, uh, I think, season or two after that, an, an episode called Memorial, which is the show where the crew start having these flashbacks to be uh, of being in this battle, this terrible sort of atrocity that takes place on this planet. But this is a, a, a battle they've never been in, but they keep experiencing these memories right. of, of having been involved in this in this terrible atrocity, and they don't know where where this is coming from. Uh, and as the story plays out, what it turns out is that there's this planet with this war memorial on it that is broadcasting the events of this terrible thing that took place. And the Voyager crew are picking up on it and reliving it as if it was them who took part in this in this story. But it's like happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Yeah. And the device is malfunctioning because what it should do is it should tell you this is what you're going to experience. And that kind of bit of the program's not working. Right. Uh, and at the end of the story, you know, they, they, they find this device and... Uh, and there's a conversation between Janeway and Chakotay, and they said, oh, you know, Chakotay says, well, we should turn this thing off. And Janeway says, this is a disrespect to people who this happened to. Is we're going to fix it yeah. so it works correctly. And, and that's the end of the story. Um, and, and that was a lot of fun to write. And that was, um, again, I have a story about that. Uh, <laughs> on, on, on Friday nights, I used to have my friends come around and we would play, uh, we would play board games or role-playing games. Oh, cool. So on a, fr on a Friday evening, if you can imagine me and my pals in my house drinking beer and playing games, throwing dice... And, and the phone rings kind of in the in like 11 o'clock at night. And I'm like, who the hell is calling me at 11 o'clock at night? <laughs> and I stumble kind of slightly tipsily into the room like, hello, who is this? And this voice at the other end says, please hold for Brandon Braga. What? <laughs> I'm like, what? I sobered up real quick. <laughs> and and Brandon comes on the phone and says, okay, well, we're going to buy your episode. Let's have a talk about the conversation. And we went through it. And, and I, whoa. And I, was, and I remember at one point when my friends comes bowling into the kitchen where the phone was. And he's like, where's the beer? And I was like, I just handed him a six pack. Get out. Don't come back in. <laughs> and so like a couple of hours later, I come back in. And they're like, what the hell happened to you? And I was like, guys, guess what happened? And, you know, <laughs> that, was, that was a funny meeting. So, yeah, I think... Uh, you know, my, I was, uh, my professionalism slipped a little bit there at the beginning of that. And I was like, no, no, everything's fine now. Right. <laughs> and then, of course, uh, more drinking after the call, I'm sure. Absolutely, yeah, because then, <laughs> then we had a reason to celebrate. You know? Right. <laughs> and, and that was great. And what was fantastic was um, the, the first episode, uh, it was uh, Robin Berger did the, did the actual final draft of the script on one. Sure. And it was um, Jerry Taylor who did the script for Memorial. And they made me look great. They just took my story ideas and absolutely made them fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I was just really, you know, really proud to be to be a part of that. Uh, and as a, and, and as, a, as a Star Trek fan, and even with the ongoing stuff I've done with the novels, one of the great things about writing in this universe is because it's something that's given me so much joy and yeah. so much fun over the years to be able to, to kind of add a little piece to that great kind of crazy quilt that is Star Trek is, is really great. You know, I feel kind of... All of that watching Star Trek has been worth it after oh. all these years, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. I, and writing for Doctor Who and, uh, you know, just even like Dread or Blake Seven. I was talking with uh, Una McCormick on the show last year, and we were talking about her growing up watching uh, Blake Seven. And now she's writing audio dramas and like putting words in Paul Darrow's mouth, and she has to just pinch herself sometimes. 
Yeah, uh, much love to my my colleague Una. She's she's great. She and I like the flying the flag as the kind of the, the two Brits Star Trek writers. So we, yeah. we do, so we we do a lot of convention. We've got a whole double act kind of thing going now, which works really well. Yeah, it's it's very true that, that uh, you know the the thing about being a fan of genre stuff is is quite often you know you're you're kind of a passive consumer of it, and yeah. but you know you can't be, I think you can't be a fan of this stuff without asking yourself, well, I wonder what would happen if this story played out this way or if this character did this thing. Yeah. And being a writer of time fiction allows you to do that and get paid for it, which is, you know, it's uh, that's a pretty good job. It's a plus. Both One and Memorial are darker stories, and they both feature the crew experiencing delusions and questioning what's real and what isn't, and ultimately becoming very paranoid and affected by their experiences. Is that something that you particularly enjoy having in your work, um, putting characters through the ringer and having them wonder what's happening to them? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I always have said that I think good drama is when you put a character in a box and then shake the box. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> you know, and, and that is very much those kind of stories. I mean, uh, there is there is this kind of like very much the sort of questioning the nature of reality and questioning the nature of self. Yeah. One of my favorite writers is uh, Philip K. Dick, yeah, who yeah. I grew up reading his stuff. Um, and, and a lot of his fiction is all about kind of, you know, what is the nature of memory? What is the nature of humanity? What is the nature of reality? And those were those are big, proper, heavyweight science fiction ideas, and I think it's always fun to sort of play with those and, and question question the, the the boundaries of stories. When I was trying to come up with an idea originally for Voyager, um, I, I went back to all the Star Trek episodes that I'd loved the most, mm. and I tried to kind of dismantle them and think, okay, why why does this episode really appeal to me? What what is the thing about it that I like that I want to emulate in in a in a Star Trek medium? And one of the shows I came back to was. Uh, a Brandon Braga episode from TNG, Frame of Mind. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which you, which you remember is the one where, you know, uh, Riker wakes up in a mental institution. Yeah, right, and, right. And, and there's this whole sort of subtext about this play that he's being involved in. And I love that story. It's so cool. I mean, we all know that, of course, you know, it's true. <laughs> he isn't delusional. But but there are points in the episode where, you know, you, you kind of see him starting to question his own his own sort of sanity. And I think that's really interesting to to play with the character and push them to those places. I like stories where where the heroes come out kind of at the end, bloody but unbowed. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I think that I, I like stories where heroes earn it. I always feel like if they, if you if you got these kind of Teflon sort of like flawless heroes who just kind of swan their way through a story <laughs> and they come out the other end, and yeah. it's kind of cool to watch them, you know, be cool. But I always think, you know, you didn't really earn that victory. And yeah. I, And I like stories where characters have to work at it a little bit. Yeah, I do as well. You've written uh, more than a few novels in the Trek universe, and you've written for various eras of Trek. Do you have a favorite Trek series or a favorite Trek era to write for? I think in terms of like being a fan, um, classic Trek has to be like my favorite era because that's that's the first one I came to, uh, and that's the one I have like I think the most fondness for. Classic, the the original series. Yeah, original. So yeah, I always call it classic. Because yeah, I mean, like thirty years, thirty years ago, TNG is kind of classic now too. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. You know, but to, to me, uh, you know, yeah, a lot of people just say like, oh, TOS, but I always think of it as classic Trek. You know, sure. so um, and because that's the show that I grew up with, and, and that kind of bold, brassy, brightly coloured Star Trek to me is, you know, with with the uh, the, the the ideas worn on its sleeve that it has these larger than life kind of mythological. Uh, stories, these these allegories and parables. That's that to me is Star Trek at its core. Yeah. Having said that, I like all the shows. I don't think there is there's any Star Trek 
there's there's maybe a couple of the movies I'm not a big fan of, but you know, but there, there's no there's no Star Trek that I would go. Ah, I don't want to watch this. You know, yeah. if I if I turned on TV and there's like any particular Star Trek, even we're even Spock's brain or like Threshold from Voyager, right? Right. The, the really the episodes that aren't that great. I'd be like, oh, I guess I'd probably watch this. You know, <laughs> I think of it as like, um, you know, the, the family of shows for want of a better term. Each one of them is. Is like a different cousin that you have a fondness for, and but they're funny or f- great to hang out with for a completely different reason. Yeah. Is there any corner of the Trek universe that you haven't got a chance to write yet, but you'd like to? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I haven't been able to tell a story uh, in the Enterprise era. Oh, okay. And I'd like to do that just to be able to kind of like collect the set. Yeah. So I could say that I've written, you know, one story. And, and obviously, the, oh, and of course, the Kelvin timeline stuff as well. I forgot about that. Yeah. So I would like to do stories with those those characters and those versions of the of the timeline yeah. just to just to be able to tick all the boxes and say, you know, I've, I've done every kind of Star Trek. Yeah. Well, your most recent Star Trek novel is Fear Itself, which, of course, is set in the Star Trek Discovery time. And it features a look at the career of Saru before the events of Discovery. Was Fear Itself originally your your idea or was it something that Simon and Schuster had approached you to do? Actually, it was it, it came from uh, the production at uh, Discovery. Oh, the show. OK. Yeah. So um, a year before um, the announcement, we were quietly approached, so myself, David Ward, and David Mack, mm. by our good friend, uh, Kirsten Bayer. Kirsten, of course, uh, tie-in writer before she made the jump to working on, on the TV show. Yeah. Kirsten knew us all personally. She knew our work. So she came to, came to the three of us and said, look, you know, we want you to tell these stories, um, these kind of prequel stories that build in the background for, for these different characters. And she said, and she came to me and she said, how do you feel about doing the story about Saru? And, you know, Star Trek traditionally has that outsider alien viewpoint character, you know, so it's Spock or it's Data or yeah. it's Odo or, or Seven of Nine. You know, we always have that character who sees, looks at the looks at humanity from the outside in. So Saru, I was immediately thinking, well, this is that guy for, for Star Trek, you know, and he's a new species and we don't know much about him. And he has this this kind of unique kind of out, outlook on life. And immediately that to me seemed interesting. Because one of the great things about Discovery is I think it's not it's not the Star Trek of the original series. It's like everybody in the original series kind of has their, if I can say a rude word, shit together. Sure. Whereas like, you know, in, in um, Discovery, we're not quite there yet. Right, right. So, and I like that about it because I think that gives them somewhere to go. That gives them, you know, gives them. An, I mean, that's pretty much what the entire plot of the first season is, is, you know, Burnham makes a terrible choice and the rest of the season is her kind of finding her way back to undo that and, and become a better person and learn from, from what she did. Yeah. And so, and so the opportunity to tell that kind of story about Saru, who is this really interesting, but this character with this deep personal flaw that is marbles, everything about him. That's really fascinating because a lot of Star Trek is not about characters who are flawed because a lot of Star Trek characters are quite good at what they do and are quite together. Right. So the idea about writing about somebody who was, you know, really being constantly challenged, not just by external forces, but also by this internal issue he's got. That he's carrying this great weight of this kind of personal anxiety about everything going on around him. That was a really, that was a lot of fun to kind of get in there because it's got such great sort of energy for character. Yeah, right. I heard you say in an interview that your experience working on a Discovery tie-in was completely different than your tie-in work in the past, just because you've had like unprecedented access to input and material from the producers and the writers of Discovery, and that even you and the other disco novel authors have originated some of the material that's made its way on screen. 
Yeah, that was a, a very interesting experience. When you work on tie-in projects, there's never kind of like one map for how it works. Some franchises will be totally hands-off and they'll let you do whatever you want. Other ones are, you know, they will, you know, go into a tiny, tiny little detail to every <laughs> small little element, you know, and sometimes it can be really, really sort of troubling. With Star Trek, it, we always got a reasonably free hand because I think most of the writers on the Star Trek books had a good sense for what Star Trek is. Right. So we weren't likely to come out with something that the licenses would say, whoa, that doesn't feel like Trek. Right. Uh, but with this, because this was a developing franchise, is that the shows being put together at the same time we were working on the novels. We went through this period where, you know, I would wake up every morning and I would turn on my computer and there would be a couple of emails. And one would be the latest draft of the next script that they were working on. And the and the photography from the previous day's shooting, so I was literally seeing the show come together day by day, and that is a fascinating experience. Yeah, to to sort of like, oh, here's you know, here's this green screen photography of this, or here's the location shoot for this different thing. So we were seeing the the show assembling itself, and being the ha being able to have that window into it, having Kirsten be kind of the the bridge between us as the prose writers and. And the writers in the in the show was was really fantastic, and also I got the opportunity very briefly to pop in and and have a conversation with uh, the writing team. I was in uh, Los Angeles working on a different project, and I took a day to just go in and uh, and hang out with Kirsten and sit in the writers' room and chat to those people there and oh, wow. just kind of throw that throw out my ideas. And t I told them about the novel I was writing, and you know they were giving me some really useful insights, and that was just fantastic to to have that degree of access. And I think it really shows in the books as well is that. We've tried very hard to to make them dovetail as closely as possible with the TV show. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, because even in the case for writing something like for the original series, I mean, there's 40 or 50 years that have gone by for the readership to know these characters and they're set for people. But with Discovery, everything we see or read is a new chapter in the world of these characters. When, when you were writing Fear itself, how much of Saru's backstory was set and how much was your invention? Uh, well... It was kind of, you know, we, it grew in the telling, really, I would say. You uh -huh. know, that we didn't have a lot of backstory for him. I mean, we actually put together, Kirsten and I, and also that with some input from Dave and Dayton, put together an entire um, world book for the, the, the culture and the species, all these different ideas that we were pitching about, you know, how Saru's culture could, could have been put together and, you know, what kind of culture would create a species like the Kelpians and a person like Saru, you know, why would they, why would they be kind of like obsessed with this kind of shadow of death kind of thing? Why would they be these kind of scaredy cat type characters? Right? <laughs> yeah. What, what kind of culture would you have to be to, to, to produce a person like that? Um, but most of that stuff was all kind of invisible. It was all like out in the background out out on the fringes of things, yeah. informing the style of which uh, that we would tell them. And uh, a lot of that stuff hasn't been used in the show. Okay. So, uh, like you know, the, if you've seen the, um, uh, is it Beyond the Bright Star? The um, the brightest the star, yeah. Yeah, the Bright Star, the um, the, the little short tracks. There's um, it was interesting for me to watch that because I was like, oh, they've gone this direction on the TV show, and, and they took, it's thematically it goes in the same direction but in a very different way. Uh -huh. And there and there are some little touchstones which was kind of cool. There are a few things that, uh, if you read Fear itself, there's this whole thing about uh, this this dice game that the Kelpians play. Yeah. yeah. Which, which was the thing that Kirsten and I came up together. And it was one of my favorite little kind of little curlicules of idea. And that pops up 
in the Bryce Stone. That made me so happy to see that there because <laughs> it was a, a really, you know, really fun little detail. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be interesting for me to see, you know, where where we go beyond that with the character of Sarah in uh, future episodes. Yeah. Well, as of this taping in the most recent episode of Discovery, uh, an obol for Karen, uh, Saru goes through a major change in both his biology and also resultingly his psychology as well. Um, as somebody who established you know, his fear as a touchstone for his character early on. How do you think he'll go forward now that his fear has to a degree been purged from him? Yeah, I wonder though, you know, I wonder how much of that is gone. Okay. I mean, I think it's, it's, uh, you know, we're still in early days with this show. I mean, we're only oh, yeah. in the second season, right? You know, yeah, so, right, right. so, uh, you know, come back to me when seven seasons have been done. Right? You know, <laughs> sure. I, I think we'll probably have a very different conversation, you know, when, when we, when we get around to kind of the season finale of discovery. Yeah. We'll probably look back on this and go, "Wow, you know, look at look at the long, strange journey that character's been." <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> well, I'd love to talk about all your work, uh, but we'll never get through it all. Uh, I'd really like to talk about your new series of novels, the Mark Dane books. And I'm assuming that, like me, you were a big fan of Cold War espionage authors like Fleming and Clancy and Le Carre when you were uh, growing up. Definitely. Yeah. It, the the two great loves in literature in my life, science fiction and uh, action espionage thrillers, sure, you know. Sure. So, um, you know, the uh, like, as you say, sort of like Fleming, Clancy, and also Robert Ludlum is, uh, is oh, another yeah. one that's like, it's a very strong touchstone for me. I'd been writing science fiction for quite a while, and I'd been doing a lot of tie-in stuff. And, and as much fun as it is to work with other people's stuff, you know, you are essentially playing with someone else's box of toys. Right. And that is great. You know, someone comes to you and says to you, well, here's this great toy box and you can play with these figures and you can have a little adventure. But at the end of the day, you have to put them back in the box. Right. Yeah. And you can't break them and you can't get sticky fingerprints all over them. You know, you have to you have to hand the box back at the end of the day. It's not your box. Yeah. And the and I started thinking, well, maybe I should have my own box of my own toys and I should start making, you know, what's the story that I could tell? And I was kicking around a few ideas. You know, I have a couple of science fiction ideas that maybe one day I'll, I'll get around to doing. But I wanted to do something to kind of just test myself. I find in my career, every kind of 10 years, I look around and I think, I need to do something new. I need to do something that I haven't done before. I need to stretch myself as a writer. I need to, to challenge myself in a way, whether that's kind of working on a different style of project or working in a different genre, just to, just to keep me fresh, just to keep me interested. Sure. And... There was kind of these two forces kind of coming together. And also another one was that my mum, people always laugh at this story. My mum has what she calls the brag shelf in the house. <laughs> she has a little bookshelf and she has copies of all, all my books. Sure. So when her friends come around, she's like, look at my great son. Look how clever my son is. All these books. She, looks at these books. <laughs> she shows off, which is really sweet. And I love that. But she's not a science fiction fan. Oh, sure. And so she has these books, but she doesn't read them. <laughs> a lot of dust on that uh, brag shelf. A lot of dust, right? <laughs> and, and she said to me once, you know, why don't you write something that I could read? Now, she's the one who introduced me to spy thrillers. Oh, okay. So I thought, you know, that's not a bad idea. Why, could, why, not, why not write a book that my mum would like? Yeah. Because, because let's face it, the, uh, the, the ladies are the biggest book buying audience in the world. You know, if you can, sure. if you can get uh, the female reader on your side... You know, you're, you're, you're guaranteed to have a, a decent commercial success. So, so it wasn't all kind of like noble, noble thoughts behind that. But I thought, let's do that. Let's write something in a different genre. Let's write something in the modern world where I don't have the get outs that I would have with science fiction, where I have to write something that feels like it's happening in the real world. Yeah. And, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, I want to go back to the, the thrillers that I was reading in the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s when I was growing up, the kind of airport 
action thrillers, big blockbuster beach read type books. Right, right. You know, high octane, high speed, low drag. That's the kind of thing I thought about. Yeah. And that point I made earlier about, you know, uh, bulletproof Teflon heroes, you know, I wanted, I, thought, I want to write about somebody who isn't like that. Sure. Because, because so many spy heroes, I always say, like, I use this, what I call the three JBs. <laughs> if you think of James Bond, Jack Bauer, Jason Bourne. Right, right. Mo- most spy heroes fall into one of those kind of three categories. Yeah, yeah. And although, and although they all have a very different approach to the way they do their thing, you never look at them and think, well, he's not going to get out of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you know, you because they're so competent at what they do in their different ways, there's never a moment where you think, oh, that person's going to end up, you know, crushed and destroyed. You know, they're going to get through this. And I wanted to write about a hero who maybe isn't the fastest guy with a gun. He's not the toughest guy in the room. And once I had that idea, these all these things kind of started to accrete. And I realized what kind of story I wanted to tell, which is about a guy like me as a writer who was working outside of his comfort zone, who's pushed into doing stuff that he doesn't really want to do. Yeah. Uh, and, but you know, but has to, has to sort of like take on this challenge. And that was the, the genesis of the idea of the character of Mark Dane, who is, he's the guy in the van, you know, that's a stereotype yeah, you always right. see in these movies, right. Yeah. You know, where the, there's the guy who's the door kicker and the trigger puller, right. Who like, you know, is, is going into the room and beating up the bad guys and rescuing people. And there's a the guy in the van going, okay, you need to go through this door and let me hack that computer for you. Right. Right. <clears throat> and immediately I thought, well, what if that guy, has to do the other guy's job is forced into a situation where he has to be the guy who's on the, on the front line, you know, at, at the sharp end of things. Yeah. And that, and that was the genesis of these ideas. And, uh, and that became uh, nomad, my, my first book in the series. Yeah. You've talked about before, uh, well, how when you initially approach publishers with these uh, real world thriller novels, they were reluctant to take them because you were sort of perceived as a sci-fi fantasy guy. Did you have to refine your approach in, in trying to get them published or was it a question of just persisting and letting the work speak for itself? It's a little bit of both. Uh, you know, I spent like a year in the wilderness just after I'd finished the book. I mean, I spent like maybe two, two and a half years writing the book because I was the first one I was writing it and around doing other projects. Because obviously when you're writing a tie-in novel, someone gives you a contract, you write it, and there's money on the table right there. But when you're coming up with something completely new, you have to write the entire book before you even get the opportunity to maybe you might even be able to sell it. And even then you don't know. So... So after I'd assembled the whole book, you know, I was going to agents and publishers and, and I just couldn't, I couldn't get arrested. I, nobody was interested. And, and, and it was quite, I have to be honest, towards the end of it, it was quite a depressing sort of situation to be in is that I thought as somebody with my level of experience, I thought surely I'll, I'll be able to kind of get an audience yeah. with some of these people, but actually no, you know, it, it, I would get people say like, well, you're a sci-fi guy. Why, why are you writing a novel about spies and, and hackers and stuff like that? Why aren't you doing a book about you know, ray guns and spaceships, and right. I said, well, I, you know, <laughs> I've, I've kind of done that. And, and, you know, yeah, I guess I could, but I don't want to. <laughs> and, and at the time there was a, a, a movement towards these kind of, uh, I say intersectional, these kind of cross genre thrillers where it would be like, you know, it's a crime novel, but he's a ghost. Right. Yeah. You know, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, right. Yeah, yeah there yeah. you go. It's exactly like that. So, yeah, it's a romance novel, um, but um, the girl is actually from another dimension. You know, yeah. it's that kind of thing. <laughs> sure. And, and so they were saying to me, why don't you, you know, why don't you add some sort of science fictional elements? And famously, <laughs> I remember saying to this guy, um, what, I should have him, like, find the lost city of Atlantis halfway through the story. And he's like, yeah, that, that that's worked. it. <laughs> and I remember there was this, this one moment that this sticks with my mind is that I was talking to a, an editor and he said to me, why don't you put like some fantastical elements into this spy thriller, you know, make it like set it in the future 
or, or put some sort of like urban fantasy elements in it. And, and I said, are you telling me if I make my lead character a werewolf, <laughs> you'd buy this novel? And without even a second's hesitation, it goes like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, J- he said like, yeah, dude, Jason Bourne is a werewolf. If you do that novel, right? Right. And I remember on the train going home, this little voice in my head going, well, maybe, maybe I could make him a werewolf. The Bourne lycanthropy. You know, <laughs> Yeah, the born lycanthropy. There you go. This is the title, right? So, and and I was staring out the window, and I thought maybe I could do that. And then I was like, snap out of it! <laughs> and I thought, and you know what made me think about it is, is I thought, what if I do that, and it's a huge hit, and then I'm writing werewolf secret novels for, for the rest of my life. Yeah. And that's not the book. That's not the book I want to. I want to write. Yeah. I'm sure. You know. I'm sure somebody could do that and do a really great job of it. But I thought that's not the novel I want to write. Yeah. So. So I stuck to my guns and it, it became, like you said, it was, a, it, I, I just dedicated myself to, you know, I'm either going to sell this, it's going to stand or fall on, on what it is. Sure. And it's, it's great that you did. With the fall of, uh, you know, the Soviet Union, espionage writers might have thought that they were out of a job, you know, what with the end of history and all. But of course, you know, like Kirk says in The Undiscovered Country, we haven't run out of history just yet. Is it a totally different pro- proposition writing an espionage thriller now in the mise-en-scene of the post-9-11, post-WikiLeaks world? Or is it just a case of same day, different bad guys? It's a it's a bit of a mix of, of the two, you know. The, yeah. Some of those sort of, sort of like good old bad old days are all still sort of bubbling away out there. And it's funny, you know. Here we are, sort of looking down a barrel of Cold War II. This time, it's personal, right? Right. But but now it's a different sort of situation. You know, the the idea that the we were used to the idea of the Cold War being this thing that kind of thunders unseen above our heads. That you know, nation states moving pieces on a chessboard right. and us as the you know in the 80s and the 90s us as the kind of poor innocent people who might end up getting atomized in nuclear fire because you know someone upsets the wrong person right but now we're in a completely different kind of cold war which is this sort of like weaponized cyber cold war yeah and that stuff trickles down to all of us and suddenly all of us are you know we're involved in this fight with people talking about like you know weaponizing facebook and social media to cause people to <laughs> yeah. to make you know follow sort of particular political leanings and these kind of things suddenly that becomes a very very different stew of of intrigue yeah high tech you know and and very fast moving and that to me as somebody who's a, a bit of a tech nerd is is fascinating yeah and i think it's it's a very interesting place to be right now to write this kind of stuff mm-hmm. is we have we have some of the very sort of like old themes of espionage thrillers but being expressed through the lens of something completely new so it's 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 i think in a way it's everything old is new again but it's also virgin territory as well because we haven't had these kind of stories before yeah it puts it puts me in the mind of the world of uh deus ex which of course you um helped write on the uh, on the reboot for um seeing the same sort of things play out but now it's with uh, like cyber terrorism and cyberspace and uh, bionic limbs and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I remember when we were working on the Deus Ex Human Revolution, one of the first jobs I had was to write up a timeline mm, from, okay. at that point was, I think it was 2008 when I started working on it, to write up a, a chronological timeline from that period to 2027, which is the year the game is set. Yeah. So we were, you know, the further we got away from the present day, we were kind of putting in sort of like different ideas. I mean, one of my favorite ones was, was the idea of um, Canada becoming the dominant power in North America, yeah. on the North American continent, and, and Canada treating America the way that America treats Mexico. Okay. And <laughs> and and just doing kind of throwing in sort of like crazy stuff like that. And one of the things we did is we talked about um, 
uh, people with cybernetic augmentations getting involved in the Olympics, and then like two years later, that actually happened. Yeah. And and stuff we would we were coming up with, the real world was starting to outstrip us. And we realized that we, if anything, we were being conservative about the way we thought technology was going to advance, <laughs> how fast it would happen. Yeah. <laughs> and we kept on like, you know, this is our day now. We've got, to, we've got to change this. We've got to actually, if anything, be a little crazier than we thought we should because, because the world just comes out with stuff that you, you, can't, you can't imagine. You know, that old adage about truth is stranger than fiction. That's, oh, yeah, that's yeah. absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, espionage is something that seems like it should be unnecessary or at least gauche in the uh, egalitarian open, open society of the Federation. But I mean, of course, it's still present and necessary in the form of Starfleet intelligence and in darker corners of the Federation with organizations like Section 31. Um, mm -hmm. And despite appearing in a handful of episodes in the franchise, Section 31 has been very popular with fans. And there's a lot of excitement around it being in Discovery and possibly being at the root of a new Giorgio show. So I guess my question is, have we been doing it wrong this whole time, thinking that we're following the adventures of peaceful, open-minded astronauts? But the real story, the real <laughs> meat is in the skullduggery that props it all up. Well, it's again, it's the same thing. It's the idea that I think what appeals to espionage in any sort of time period is is that you you as an ordinary person can imagine that it's going on right next door to you it's you know in the shadow literally in the shadow you cast espionage can be happening right there yeah because you you know the real world ticks on and you know people go about their daily lives but there is this secret world just underneath the surface of dirty deeds and you know people spying on each other right. and the thing about star trek is you know that that whole universe certainly for the federation is built on this concept that you know, a group of people come together from diverse backgrounds and say, you know what, we're going to try to do the right thing. Right. That's like the that's like the core one of the core tenets of Star Trek. People working together to do do the right thing for the right reasons. Sure. But but that also opens you up moments you start thinking about that and you start, well, oh, there are darker things that go on. What if you have to do the wrong thing to in order to do the right thing? Sure. What if you have to make a darker choice in order to to sort of put put a situation in where people will lives will be saved where, where a good deed will be done right. if you have to sacrifice your honor and then like well how much are you willing to sacrifice you know how many people does it take admiral you know remember that line <laughs> yeah, from, yeah. <laughs> you know it's it's that sort of thing is and where do you where is the line and i think that is always fascinating to to put characters who have strong morals and then place them in a situation that forces them to compromise that because that's where you get great characters where does that person draw the line and and that's and that's to me that's espionage stories at their core yeah well, and maybe the brighter the light the the deeper the shadow uh, in the mm -hmm. case of uh, the openness of the federation i really like spy and espionage stories and the best Trek ones, in my view, um, are when our characters are they're either at a disadvantage because of their ideals, like the Bashir uh, Section 31 episodes, uh, like Inter Arma, or when they're just horrified and they're just morally crippled uh, at the end of the show by their actions, like in the Pale Moonlight, like being mm. affected, uh, like in the way that you mentioned before, like what you like to do to your characters, just walking away from a situation being like, boy, I don't know if I could do that every day. Mm. I mean, I think certainly, you know, the, the, the Bashir storyline with Section 31 is a lot of fun. Like you say, with, you know, with that episode, which, you know, in, in Latin, it's what in in time of in time of war, all laws fall silent. is right. what the title means. Right. right. And, and that's and that's comes from this thing that Cicero wrote. But it's talking about, um, you know, when you suspend laws to do d dirty deeds when when it's wartime, you say, well, it's wartime. We'll get away with this kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, and we see that in the real world all the time, and yeah. so you place that in a Star Trek context, especially in DS9, where you know it's in the middle of that context of the Dominion War, and uh, in the Pale Moonlight is the I think a brilliant exemplar of that. You know, we see 
Cisco has made this terrible choice mm-hmm. in order to do it for a greater good, but he's done something really, really bad. And and the other episode, and, and this episode with with Bashir is kind of him going through the same sort of thing. He does get a bit of a pass at the end, to be honest. I mean, I think you know he he's, he's he had a lot to do with bad stuff happening, and he kind of walks away from it a little bit. But we do see the the, the sort of seeds planted in that episode, but with Sloan and Section Thirty One, that does eventually kind of come out in later episodes in the same season. We see uh, is it tacking into the wind mm-hmm. and extreme measures. You know, we see Bashir and and his his comrades basically doing Section Thirty One type stuff. Yeah. To, to section 31 right and saying well you know right. we, we, it's the well we have to fight fire with fire you know we have to we have to do morally dubious stuff in order to deal with these guys but it's right. again it's for a greater good yeah and i love the fact that it's not even just to win the war it's there they have to it's like using you know, like you said fire with fire or using chemotherapy on cancer like doing something horrible to sort of eradicate what they see as this thing in their perfect society that just shouldn't be there like suddenly it's okay they're doing something bad, but if we do it bad back to them, that's fine. <laughs> There's a, a phrase that always uh, I would always talk about, one of Kirk's kind of exemplar phrases. You can always imagine Shatner standing there going, what gives you the right? Right, <laughs> right. How many, time, how many times have you seen that on Star Hands Trek? Hands out, Kirk, yeah. You know, Kirk walks into a situation, you know, what gives you the right to do to do this bad thing that you're doing? And and we see and when we see our heroes do that, it's fun to have that reflected back on them. What gives you the right yeah. to, to make this choice? Is, you know, why do you have unquestioned moral authority and somebody else doesn't? People think that, like, you know, people love those Section 31 episodes, and I always get a little uncomfortable about it because they're entertaining, but I wouldn't want the show to be that all the time because, you know, I come to Trek for the optimism. And something that I've run into when looking at Trek for this show is that it's often the exceptions to the norm that people remember or praise the most. Like, you think of a prototypical Trek episode is the crew is exploring, they encounter something dangerous and confusing, you know, they have the opportunity to respond belligerently or with force, but they reject that option. Oftentimes, Kirk goes, what gives you the right? Uh, and they're rewarded, you know, for upholding their values. But almost all the lists of the best Trek episodes uh, seem to contain, you know, war stories like Yesterday's Enterprise, you know, the best of both worlds, uh, episodes like Pale Moonlight, um, the mirror universe episodes of uh, Enterprise. Like, do people just need an antidote to all that optimism sometimes? I guess maybe. I mean, you know, I, I, when I think about my favorite episodes, um, I think one of the best exemplars of the Star Trek doing doing all the right stuff is like Devil in the Dark. Yeah. Where, you know, we're confronted with this, what appears to be a hideous, horrible monster that's killing people. Yeah. You know, and it is this traditional kind of like, you know, monster in the tunnels kind of story. And then halfway through, it's like, no, actually, that's not what's going on at all. Is this creature is a distraught mother and it's just looking after itself. And it ends up being a story about how can we not. Not, not kill this thing, but find a way to like live in, in peaceful coexistence. And again, it's, that's a, uh, it's a pillar that the Star Trek sort of mythos stands on. Yeah. I, but I think people like seeing their characters in circumstances that are uncommon to them. Uh-huh. So, so placing them in situations where, you know, if they're, if you're always optimistic and you're always forward looking, it's, it's memorable to see a character in the opposite circumstances. Sure. So maybe that's why those stories you know, are memorable because they are precisely so different. Yeah. Well, generally, you don't get a protagonist in Trek that's totally sanguine about doing you know horrible things or anything that's necessary. But it looks like that that might be what we're getting with someone like uh, Giorgio in the uh, rumored series for her. And if there's ever a Giorgio book to go along with that series, I'd I'd love to see you write it. No, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, she's a fascinating character. To be honest, I'd love to write just like 
uh, young Giorgio, like not yeah. evil Giorgio, oh, okay. but actually, <laughs> Good Giorgio. you know, mostly, yeah. I mean, mostly because I, also I'm a huge fan of Michelle Yeoh as an yeah. actor. Yeah. Uh, I think she, she's brilliant. Um, it was funny. We was we were kicking around ideas about like other stories for these characters. If you if you want to see a great young Giorgio story, uh, read Dayton's uh, novel, which is just like it's got young Giorgio and kind of young um, Lorca, and not mirror universe Lorca, but the prime universe Lorca. Yes. Uh, and that's a really fascinating. Uh, you know, a character I would love to explore the backstory of um, is Ash Tyler. Yeah. You know, I'd, I'd love to know who that guy was because we know. You know, when you think about it, we never actually really met him. Right. Yeah. You know, the, when you first see him, he's not, you know, you don't know at the time, spoiler alert, but he's, you know, he's this hybrid person. So the actual Ash Tyler, I'd love to see a story about him. And of course, he is somebody else that's being tapped for this Section 31 story, that character. Yep. I, I like that because I think he's an interesting character because he is morally compromised. But I get the sense that he's trying to be a good man. Yeah. And he's a and, lot he's a lot like a protagonist of a lot of uh, spy novels in that he's just following this flag and the flag keeps changing. He's always um, the servant and he's always sort of working for ma- for a master. Uh, but the allegiances kind of continue to change like Federation, Klingons, now Section 31. I mean, I like the idea of him being this kind of bag of broken pieces yeah. that's trying to find a shape for himself, you yeah. know. That, that I look at that character and I think for all the things that's going on, even in the two elements of like Ash Tyler and Voke, these, they're two guys who were trying to do the right thing in their own circumstances. Yeah. And now we have this character who is essentially a synthesis, this, this kind of like, you know, broken synthesis of those two guys. <laughs> that's, a, that, that's a fascinating character because immediately you've got drama just built in because on his own, he's got two different warring parts of him. And then you put that guy into a situation and say, well, now you've got to go out and do morally compromised, you know, dubious stuff in the shadows. Yeah. And, and I think there's a, there's a lot of room for, for interesting character development because I think he's a character who could either fall deep into darkness or more interesting, he'll be seeing that guy trying to strive towards the light to try and do that, you know, to be in work for Section 31, but to do the right thing. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. Well, that would be a great book. Let's get that out there. Let's get you to write that book. Yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> You've got a great blog uh, at James Swallow at blogspot.com, and you posted uh, after the new year a list of all the media that you consumed, uh, books, films, games. And I know you're a p- prolific and busy author. How do you find time to work and read and watch and play all the media you do? Usually I just don't, I don't sleep as much as I should. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. You know, <laughs> that's my secret too. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a fast reader. So you know, I'm I'm often consuming just books all the time, and uh, I feel like because I'm somebody who works in media, it behooves me to kind of just see what's cool, yeah, and see what see what people like. But I just there's, there's just so much great stuff out there, you know. That's the thing is, is people say, well, you know, why are you always watching these two these TV shows? I'm like, but I don't want to miss it because it looks really cool. Yeah, and there is a lot of stuff I miss. You know, people say to me, have you have you caught this thing? I'm like, no, oh no, man, there's another show. I want to watch, you know, like uh, uh, just just this week I was talking to somebody about The Expanse. Oh, yeah. And, and I've only seen like two episodes of that. And, I've, and that was a show I thought, I'll put that. So I'll, I'll come back to that. And now it's like, well, it's three seasons. Yeah. I had no, with a it's just time. like, sli- yeah. right. It's like slipped right past me. And I thought, OK, I need to go and get like, you know, get the DVDs of those and, and, and go and uh, binge watch that. But yeah, I mean, I just uh, that's that's my downtime, you know, so I, I spend I spend time kind of like creating these fictional stories in these fictional worlds. And then uh, for my leisure that I go back to different ones. Yeah. Any games that you've been playing recently, you've really been enjoying? 
Yeah, I just uh, I just been playing the uh, the the private beta for the Division Two, which oh, is sure. a project I actually worked on that last year, and and so that's kind of fun to to get my hands on that. I played a little bit of it when we were in the early development stages, but to see a kind of more polished version of it, yeah. that's so cool. There's all, all the hard work that we that we did coming together, so that's that's really great. Um, and Anthem, I tried the uh, the demo of that, a new sci-fi sure. game. Yeah. So so yeah, but I'm always looking for for new interesting kind of titles, and a lot of um, small kind of indie titles. It was a game I just played very recently. It's been out for a few years called Tacoma. Someone had recommended it to me, and okay. it's this sort of kind of sci-fi, almost like almost like a kind of crime thriller. It's an investigative thriller where you you go to a space station where everybody on board has suffered this terrible accident, right. and you're kind of like almost like an insurance investigator. You know, you've got to find out what what, what went on. But it has this really clever mechanic where you can you can observe the conversations between these different characters, and it has uh, it has a really nice sort of um, you know developing plotline. It's not very long. It uh, feels like a novella kind of length game, but I really enjoyed that a lot. I'm still waiting for that really killer app Star Trek game that has to be waiting in the wings somewhere. I mean, there's been a few pretty good Trek games over the years, but it seems like there's never been one that's like an all-time Hall of Fame game. Uh, as both a Trek author and somebody who's written for games and been nominated for a BAFTA for his game work, what do you think stands in the way of there being a really good Trek game? Like what's necessary to make a really great Trek game? I think what you'd need to do is... You would need to give a studio just just give them their head and say like do whatever you want to do, uh-huh. you know, and not have it like tied into a movie release or a oh, TV yeah. show or something like that. Uh, you know, have it be my ideal Star Trek game. If I could, if someone said to me, right, what would your design document be for this? I would create something that feels like Skyrim for Star Trek. Okay. You know, some, <laughs> something or something like Deus Ex uh-huh. or or one of those kind of games. So. Uh, a role-playing game, an action role-playing game, you know, where you had a char- you'd have a character you could build up and change and and, and manipulate, but but it would have a a linear storyline, but with lots of kind of side quest stuff going on there. Sure. And there would and there would be a core narrative and set that in the Star Trek universe. Have you go visit interesting places and meet cool characters? I think that would be a lot of fun to do. Yeah, I think uh, DS9 was it the the Fallen was a PC game. Yeah, uh, yeah. that uh, I think um, that Mac had worked on. Um, that I think got kind of close to that. It had sort of an RPG esque yeah, uh, sort of feel to it. Yeah. Well, hopefully we'll get one of those uh, someday. Thanks so much, James, for for speaking with me today. Where can people follow you online? You can find me uh, on Twitter, trying my best to be witty at at JM Swallow. Okay. And good luck with your upcoming novel, Shadow. Where and when can listeners get their hands on that? So that's going to be hitting in hardcover on the 31st of May here in the UK. Uh, um, In the US, my second Mark Dane novel, Exile, I think is going to be out in March. And that's on hardcover or paperback? Uh, Yeah, the US one is in hardcover. Yeah, And also like digital too. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Well, thanks again. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much to James Swallow for taking the time to come talk with me. Uh, I recommend checking out his Mark Dane series. The second book in the series, Exile, hits American bookstores on May 14th. Also, the fourth book, Shadow, comes out on May 30th across the pond and on Amazon. I'll leave you some links in the show notes so you can pre-order those. Also, if you don't have it yet, you should definitely pick up his Star Trek Discovery novel, Fear Itself, or any of the preceding disco novels by authors that you've heard on this very show. Uh, James also wanted me to remind you that David Mack, frequent guest on this program, has a series of novels dealing with Section 31 and espionage in the world of Trek, and Mack's latest novel, Collateral Damage, will be out on October 8th of this year, so you've got time to pre-order it. Links to all of those great books will be 
in the show notes. Those links will take you to Amazon.com, and it's there where you can purchase the Mark Dane novels, Star Trek disco books, and many other Trek Blu-rays, novels, merchandise, what have you. When you get to Amazon by clicking through our links or through our Amazon banner at enterprisingindividuals.com, a percentage of your transaction comes back to us at no extra cost to you and helps keep the Warp Core lit here. And this counts for anything. It's not just Star Trek stuff. In fact, you can bookmark our banner. And when you click through to Amazon that way, whatever you buy, the same deal applies. It's a great way to help support the show. Anytime you shop on Amazon.com, click through that banner or through your bookmark or saved link and shop away. And maybe you're saying xylophones make bad babysitters. Repeat, xylophones make bad babysitters, to which I would say that is the correct countersign. Meet me on the bridge at 12. But I'd also say that if you like what you hear on Enterprising Individuals and you want to support the show, why not head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. It's there that you can sign up to be a crew member for the show for a small monthly amount, and you can get access to exclusive subscriber content like live shows, DS9 rewatch recaps, Star Trek Voyager recaps, and more for just $12 a year. If you join at the $5 level, you get live gach our series of extended interviews from show guests containing off-topic discussions and outtakes. Coming up this Saturday on Live Gah is a continuation of my interview with author David R. George III. I always love talking to David on the show, and we always talk at length about a variety of interesting topics, some Trek, some not. So join us at the Ensign level, and you get access to that. You also get sneak peeks at what's coming up on the show, show merch, and we'll thank you live on air for your contribution, so get involved. Join the crew of the USS Enterprising Individuals, just head to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. Anyone can join our crew, whatever side of the neutral zone you're on, all are welcome at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. And as always, the best way to support the show is to tell a friend. Anything you contribute to the show will be appreciated and will help keep us flying. Thanks. Remember, listeners, you can tweet to us or message the show and maybe have your comment read on the air. Just go to facebook.com forward slash EISTpod or find us at at EISTpod on Twitter or through our social media links on enterprisingindividuals.com. You can join our Facebook discussion group called Enterprising Interlocutions to continue the discussion of the themes and characters of Star Trek. You can also reach the show at EISTpod at gmail.com with feedback and suggestions or to just say hello. We're waiting to receive your transmission. And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an Apple Podcast listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts and make sure that you're subscribed to the show. Also, write us a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating at the very least. We'd appreciate it. If you're not an Apple Podcast listener, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings and reviews there on those platforms as well, we'd be eternally grateful. Next week on Enterprising Individuals. As a sentient android, Lieutenant Commander Data is one of a kind. Except for Lore. Uh, and B4. And Ruck. And Reyna. And maybe Mud's androids, like a planet and whatever Arium is. Anyway, Data is the only functional Soong-type android in the universe. As rare as a near-extinct Lapling, or a 1962 Roger Maris card, or even a Veronti Disruptor. Worth a place in any discerning connoisseur's collection. Writer and associate editor for Forbes magazine, Alex Knapp, joins the show next week to talk about an episode of Star Trek, The Next Generation, that sees Data fighting once again for his freedom and contemplating how far he'll have to go to keep it. It's the most toys, next time on Enterprising Individuals. 
And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban signing off and saying live long and prosper. Yeah.